Hey, it's Michelangelo Caruso. I'm here with Wally Reyes Jr. How are you? Walfredo. Walfredo, that's the Italian way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, such a pleasure, sir. Thank you for Thank doing this. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. We're going to talk to Wally about what it's like to drum in a band called Chicago, ladies and gentlemen. He's also had a storied career on the road with many, many, many famous artists that you know. We're going to do stories from the road. We're going to do uh, uh, all kinds of fun stuff. Before we get started, I want to remind you that you can subscribe to this YouTube channel and be notified every single time we post a new video. Make sure you do that and ring that silver bell. You can also listen to the audio version of these interviews on podcasts. It's a Talk To Me podcast. It's available on Podbean and other platforms. Before we press record, Wally, we were talking about, we were talking about the format of the interview. I always tell people there's two kinds of musicians, the kind that can read and the kind that can improvise. You said you're an improviser, but I'll bet you can read a little too. Oh, I learned how to read so I can improvise. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a double threat. Yeah, learn the laws and then you learn how, what to do with them, you know. You told me on the phone the other day that, that uh, it's hard for, to teach your kid. Your father was a very talented percussionist, first I think in Cuba and then Las Vegas, correct? Yes. Did you learn anything from your father? Yes, well, he was the one that actually started me. And then very quickly I realized that, like I, when I taught my daughter Liliana how to play percussion, she went on the road with George Benson. First she got the job as a singer and then as a percussionist, so I trained her. It's very difficult to teach your blood because the relation of father-daughter or whatever, father-son. So my father started me. And then told me, you know, this is not going to be, I'll give you a set of drums and, and you start playing some beats. I mean, you have a, you're going to either do it right, like you're going to play tennis or judo or whatever. You're going to really do it the best possible way. Because yeah. then later on, you know, you, you develop bad habits and you have to come back and start over again. And so you don't want to come back. You want to develop good technique, good foundation, like gardening, like cooking. You know, you can rewind. So, um, so he was the first teacher. I had other teachers in school. But, yeah, my father still is my teacher because once in a while, it's almost like, um, what do you call it, quality control once in a while. QC. Yeah, he calls and goes, hey, how's it going? And then I say, well, I did this. And then, and then he gives unsolicited advice. So he's still there fine-tuning. You know, when I was a kid, my father taught me to play trumpet, and he was fond of reminding me that when he was a kid, he learned something called solfagio. Oh, yes. You know the term? Well, that's how my dad start, wanted to start at me, actually. How do, you, how do you define the term solfagio? Solfagio is singing the notes before you touch the instrument. So that's how, that's the first time I quit. It's funny you, you just brought it up because I quit at eight. Because so I wanted to study drums, and my father started me because all the family did solfeggio before they touched the instrument. So basically, you can get uh, uh, music and go do 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 re mi pa do and my uncles all sang the, the music parts solfeggio before they played it on the sax. Yeah. So I quit. I went. Are you kidding me? Ringo Starr and Charlie Watts is that what they did? No way. So then at twelve. He decided, okay, I'm not going to push the solfeggio. So he started me with a metronome, a practice pad, 
in a book of rudiments. And then I thought that I was an abused child for four months. But, you know, but I did it. I did it. And then I, from, I didn't, haven't stopped since. Well, so you, you like, learned uh, Pedro. I think you're right about all kinds of disciplines. Uh, there are some, we know these uh, freaks that they don't do any rudimentary stuff and somehow they figure it out and they become superstars. But I do think if you're gonna, if you're gonna go at it right, you wanna, you wanna learn the basics and get going. Let's talk about your dad before we get into your storied career, man. Your dad was a drummer in Las Vegas, a percussionist maybe. Well, both, both. In Las Vegas during the heyday, like the Rat Pack years. Yes. What, did he come home and tell you guys stories at dinner? How did that work out? Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, before that, <clears throat> my dad was the house drummer at uh, Hotel Nacional in Cuba, in Havana, uh, at the Casino Parisien, where I saw a photo a few years ago of him with a suit, double bass drum on the drums, and the, the band was looking good, black and white picture in the 1950s, and then there was a, a black lady singing, and I was going, that, who was that? And he goes, that was Josephine Baker. I go, Dad, you play with Josephine Baker? He goes, yeah. She came to Cuba for a two-week engagement and stayed for two years. So if you actually go back and see the movie Josephine Baker, when the, the time that she was in Cuba, my dad was actually drumming for her at the hotel. Wow. You know? And Havana was a hot spot. So imagine if you were the premier band in Havana, you were meeting lots of Americans, maybe people from other countries. Oh, yes. Uh, all, the, all the acts from the United States played Havana and all the hotels. So when, when the revolution happened, you know, it actually a lot of people don't understand that it was not necessarily pro and con. It's basically Fidel Castro, new government, comes in and closes the casinos. So basically your job is gone. So my dad, 90 minutes, is like Miami and New York City. So my dad used to work there a lot. So the minute that happened, my dad said, we're going to New York, thinking that we will return to Cuba, but we never did because the situation got worse. Yeah. My dad remarried, my stepmom from Puerto Rico, and then we moved to Puerto Rico for like 11 years, something like that, until 1970 that we moved to Las Vegas. And my dad, what, what my dad did in Cuba, he did in Puerto Rico at Hotel San Juan for The Temptations, Polanca. Liza Minnelli. I used to see all those shows on the side, you know, when I was a kid. And then we moved to Las Vegas. And obviously, I was already 12 years old, uh, 12, 13 years old. So by that time, I used to go with him to the hotels. And it was like Trini Lopez, uh, Juliet Prowse, all the performers uh, in the hotels in Las Vegas. You've, you've yourself have toured with an amazing string of professionals. I don't know. We were talking the other day. It's um, you, you, by your own admission, it's part talent and part personality. You're just easy to get along with. People love you. And you're really good at what you do. Um, yes. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to, uh, that, that might sound a little weird, but I, I, I learned really quickly as I was young that there was a lot of retired, you know, big band musicians, famous musicians in Las Vegas, like Carl Fontana. Monk Montgomery, which was the bass player that started the Fender bass, Wes Montgomery's brother. If you didn't know anything about bass, hanging out with Monk Montgomery was like amazing. So, you know, I, it always rubbed like, man, if Monk Montgomery was a drummer 
And I, w- I didn't even know drums. I would like to hang out with this guy because the energy, the smile, and all that, you just feel good. So if you're a great musician and you are aiding the cause that you have, uh, you know, you have to have the whole thing because when the show is over, you're there for 21 hours uh, touring yeah. on the bus. So you got to be a team player. You got to get along with others. Yeah. Um, back to our dads again. My dad used to say that. My dad used to say that uh, his job was to help other people feel good about themselves. Absolutely. I think that's what musicians do. I. You know what? I agree a hundred percent with your dad because it's unbelievable that I ask. I have different students. They all have a different purpose. Some students want to play for themselves. They don't want to please anybody else. They want to please themselves. They want to play at home. They want to have good technique. They want to play tunes for therapy. Some of them want to play in church. Some of them just want to jam with their families or play. And But the minute you decide that you're going to go into the music business and play drums and make music with your drums for other people and get hired, you're already, now you're a businessman. So now you have a clients and for when, once you decide, I play drums and when, when a client comes in, it's, it's not about me, it's about, about you. Is it what is it that you want? What is your vision? What do you foresee? What's your purpose? Uh, and my, my job is not to actually push my agenda or, man, I'm, I have this fast technique. I want to use your music. No, it's basically whatever your music needs, I'm here for you. Sometimes it's simple, sometimes it's complicated, sometimes it's challenging for me, and sometimes it's very simple, but it doesn't matter. Are they happy? That's the question. There have been a lot of movies about famous session players uh, going all the way back to, um, what was the name of the, what are the name of the guys that worked with Hal Blaine and those guys in Glen Oh, the, the Wrecking Crew. Wrecking Crew. Yeah, Phil Spector. And- yeah, and now there's a. I'm hearing a lot about the section because Leland Sklar and these guys are kind of getting to end of life. It was Sklar, Kunkel on drums. Yes, that was uh, when Jackson Brown, David Lindley, yeah. uh, Danny Korshmar. They they not only play with Jackson Brown, but they play like Linda Ronsa, Carly Simon. James Taylor. Uh, yeah, a bunch of sessions. Yeah. And Toto was a generation of the, the Toto guys. And that's another rhythm section that was in the studios that were a younger rhythm section, and they did Boss Gags, all the records of Boss Gags. Yep. And they did all, a lot of other sessions. And then they form a band that happened to be named Toto. This is fascinating to me, as a for, not only as a former musician, but just trying to understand the music business, because we only see what you know, is shown to us, just like any other industry. But there's a whole backstage scenario that I wanted to ask you about because you're really connected to it, even though you've been with Chicago for many, many years now, first as a percussionist and now as a drummer. Yes. Um, there's like this, this connective tissue between all these cats, and this was way before the cell phone. How did you keep track of all your relationships and phone numbers? And it's got to be like an impossible task with this, all the players coming back and forth all the time. Well, that's a great question because through the eras, it was very different. When I was a kid, my dad was very busy because you didn't have technology. So any kind of music, you had to play it humanly. So my dad was busy all day long in Puerto Rico doing jingles, TV shows, uh, recording sessions, and then coming home 
eating dinner and going to the hotels to play an eight o'clock show and a 12 o'clock cocktail show, and then come back at three in the morning, start back again the next day. So yeah. everything was music. There was no computer, no demo, no garage band, no loops. So basically for a party at Christmas, the street was closed and all the musicians had to play. You play humanly. You got together a lot more humanly to make music, to rehearse, to jam. There was yeah. jam sessions. Uh, so now what happens is like time goes by. It was like that. Now in the 80s, the Lindrum machine comes in yeah. and guitar players and bass player and keyboard player now have a drummer that is not human. So they put a beat. Boom, ba, boom, boom, ba, boom, boom. So now where's the drummer? So now they, they, I, they started to, uh, to ask the drummers to come and imitate this demo that they have created on the drum. So we had to get not only into the electronics, but actually get better to imitate drum machine patterns. Wow. And then, then loops started to happen. And then now, like calls, for example, for session in the 80s, they used to have a thing. Uh, I forgot the name, but it was a, uh, a calling service. So anybody that needed uh, musicians for a movie, contractors, whatever, they would call this calling service. And then they will call you. I have a session at Paramount at 8 in the morning next Friday. Can you make it? And I will say, yes, I'll be there. Uh, and then they will call you back. So basically, there's a middle person. Uh, so it's the studios, they call the service, they get the musicians. All that disappeared. And then there was Cartage in L.A. Like Hal Blaine had four or five different drum sets. So he will finish a session with his drum set and then run to another studio, which Cartage will, will set up another drum set. So I had in L.A. three or four different drum sets, different percussion, different snare drums. And depending on what they wanted, you know, chocolate, strawberry, vanilla. Okay, take that one to the studio. And over here, they want something else. So then th that will keep you busy. But now that whole cartridge disappeared, started, things started disappearing. And, and, and now uh, I remember the last was the beeper. So now they don't need the, the service anymore. They don't need the ladies. They, they want you. Then you get the beeper. You get a number, you don't know who it is, you call, okay, I need you for a recording or a gig or a concert. Okay, I can do it. And then came the cell phones, the big one, smaller, the, the flip phone. So now you start, technology changed in our instrument and changed in communications. So now I was telling my wife the other day, like right now we're trying to get that email of the questions. Yeah. I have people that message me in Facebook. Private message me in Instagram. Private message me in Twitter. There's another thing called LinkedIn, but I, I actually not even in it anymore because I can't keep up. I keep up. And then I have two two uh, emails and text. So sometimes I don't know what where is the message. It's just like here or there. Yeah. So that's, that's crazy. At, that's what I'm getting at. The it's not like having one boss and you go to work every day. Musicians not only had to cobble together all of these assignments. To, to create a yearly revenue, but they had to keep track of all these people and stay plugged in because if you stopped being plugged in, you would stop getting calls. So it yes. was really important that, that, that you're a professional networker in addition to being a really good drummer, for example. Well, you know, I'm not, even if I think even if I got really, really busy at one time, you know, sometimes whether it's your, your wife or, or somebody that helps you, I'm not, 
big enough that I can uh, afford a manager, a booker, because people think that I have all these people working for me, and it's not true. I'm, I'm personalized. A lot, you will be surprised how many musicians are like one-on-one, -on -one. and I've always loved to be one-on-one, -on -one, even though I have an accountant, and even when I have somebody that will take care of some things, I will want to be exactly what's going on. Uh, truth so, be told, Chicago keeps you pretty busy. Well, yeah, up until this this minute. I mean, we, we do like seven to eight months every year, on and off, in and out. So for those of you watching this video sometime in the future, uh, we're just now wrapping up uh, COVID-19, the pandemic, and Chicago was forced off the road like a lot of other major touring acts. Um, and I think it's the longest you guys have been off the road, maybe in the band's 50-year history, 51 years? Correct. Yes, correct. I mean, we, well, this is the tough part, and, you know, this is personal, but, you know, I moved, for example, we were off November, December, January. So that's when you really do all the things that you cannot do on the road. So I moved to a new house, to a new old house, because this house that I'm in is from 1886. It's uh, in the historic district of Newport, Kentucky, which is across Cincinnati. So I walk and cross the river to Cincinnati. Nice. So... Uh, we bought this house, you know, moving November was just like adjusting, not too many gigs, you know, maybe teaching. I did the basic show in November. Then December is when you take a vacation and you go to the other side of the world because it's freezing over here. My wife's a scuba diver. So we went to uh, Fiji and then it's like, okay, the year's going to start. I went to visit my kids in February, did a couple of gigs and concerts uh, in Los Angeles and came back to start with Chicago in February. Well, we did three weeks in Vegas and we got cut short. So uh, in the middle of March, they sent us home saying everything is canceled or postponed until maybe June. And we go, oh my God, I have to wait until June to work. Yeah. Well, guess what? Now it's gonna be maybe September with Chicago, yeah. September, October, November. Chicago. So you know, that's a tough one. Yeah, Chicago basically has, and correct me if I'm wrong, three types of gigs right now. You've got uh, these famous double bills that you do that we'll talk about later. You've got um, you've got the Lifetime Achievement Awards, which I think you're doing more than ever. Uh, Grammy, yeah, that was fantastic. television shows, you guys are hotter than ever. Uh, and the third type of show is when you happen uh, is the house gig at, at at Vegas, which was a new thing. And I was surprised that you took it, but it's it's got to be heaven because you don't have to move every day. Yeah, well, we are in Vegas, but we still fly and do other shows like in L.A. Where you do Phoenix. That's so we're it's not like we're in Vegas in the pool. So uh, apparently, what happens in Vegas leaves Vegas once in a while. Right, exactly. So we we work usually Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. And then Sunday we fly and do like either like Thousand Oaks or and and then come back Monday. Then we have say like Tuesday off. Wednesday we work. Then Thursday we're off. Friday, Saturday we work, and then we fly again to another place. So it's all a, uh, you know. So then we actually almost didn't make it because everything started winding down, winding down, and we were like almost the last ones to leave Vegas. And when we left Vegas, everything basically our last two shows was sold out, but only half the people were there. And that's when I, when you really realized, man, this thing is really heavy. We changed, we took a lot of precautions. 
like no shaking hands, uh, you know, sanitizers everywhere. That was at the very beginning. And that was February, so and and March, and then I came and we were, I was supposed to get married March 21st, and we had to cancel everything, flights, everything. But we still got married down the street from me, at, and in the backyard of a friend of ours that married us, and we walked home to what I call a lockdown honeymoon for like about. I spent three months. <laughs> a three-month honeymoon. That's better than average. Yeah. So we. Uh, one good thing, one blessing, because I always see, you know, you have to take the best and leave the rest. That's why I tell my kids, you know, look at things, take the best from whatever you see and leave the rest. Okay. That's bad. Okay. So don't, don't grab it. Don't even spend time with it. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Absorb the good in everything. So one thing we did, we became great cooks, great gardeners, and we actually beautify our, our garden. Uh, I've, I'm actually doing my recording little place right here and teaching and learning about Zoom and this that I was not planning to do because I was not set up to do. I was supposed to get married and go back on the road. May, June, the tour will start, June, July, August. So uh, life changed and you have to make the best out of it. I love it. Okay, with you, if we field some questions here from people who wanted to ask you stuff. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it was uh, prescient of you to put this out on Twitter and some other places, and, and we got quite a few questions. Uh, I'm going to uh, ask. I'm going to read a little something here before we ask the first question because of your lineage. It's amazing. Uh, you've toured with so many people. Um, uh, I'm just going to read a partial list here. I'm sure it'll bore you, but people, people just the tops of your heads will blow off. Everybody. Uh, Jimmy Barnes, Santana. Buzz Skaggs, Gloria Estefan, Robbie Robertson, Steve Winward. You did a long tour of duty with Steve Winward. Ten years. And Santana as well. Uh, Santana about three or four, and then I went back a few times. Okay. Lindsey Buckingham, solo, yeah? Yeah, from 2007 to 11. He's solo again. I don't know if you heard. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was his, uh, his solo tour when he was now with Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mickey Hart. Uh, Jackson Brown, Johnny Halliday, and of course now the uh, the house gig and with Chicago and, and you've really made the band your own in many ways and I mean that in in the good sense of the word. Debbie Canavan, Deborah Canavan uh, asks, uh, speaking of who you've played with, have you ever toured with Cuban singer John Cicada? Uh, no, I haven't, but he belongs to the same camp and producer as the Estefan, okay. so uh, I didn't. Never work with him, but all good things uh, that I hear from John Cicada. So all, all you Cubans don't know each other? No. <laughs> all right. Listen. Uh, now that we've said the record straight. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, you think it's easier to make it in the music business now or 20 years ago, 30 years ago? It's a very difficult business. And in many ways, it's, it's a different business because before, I remember the days that we auditioned for record A&R people to get a record and to, to make a, a recording. And now we don't have to audition for nobody. So today, with all the bad things and the negativity that I see, I will tell this to the kids 
because you know I have young youngsters that are in their twenties, right? Yeah. And they they sometimes they they say they paint a picture of gloom, you know. And I remember being in school and knowing that I have to go to Vietnam, and my friends, some of my older friends, were coming back with no legs and crazy with drugs and whatever what happened. So you know, and then I remember as a kid the Cuban Missile Crisis. I remember when the world was gonna end. And it was just like, you know, a lot of uh, wars and conflict. So, you know, uh, you know, we had riots and, you know, when the Kent, Kent State happened and they shot the students. So, you know, and the civil rights and, you know, even Chicago at the beginning was one of my bands that was like, the whole world's watching. I, re I remember putting a Chicago record and that's how it started. The whole world's watching. And I had no idea what that was about. And then I researched it. That was like a protest back then. So the thing is, we now, and we have YouTube. Before I had to figure out who was in this 45 that I was listening to and how did they do it. Now you got the drummer teaching you in YouTube. There's a million YouTube videos of how Steely Dan drummers did it, how John Bonham does it, what to do, what, how to tune your drums. There's all YouTube. And you can actually start your website you actually have the ability with this laptop right here and go to GarageBand and pick up some loose and do your CD in your bedroom and, and then go to CD Baby and you have a CD. And you don't need to audition for a record company. You know, those, those are, these are amazing times that we're living that we can do that. So, okay, anybody can make a CD? Fine. So back then, not anybody can make a record because they they have to pass the A&R person to a well, audition. Some people say it's easier now, but the problem is everybody has access to all that stuff. That's true. But, you know, I remember, you know, when I moved to L.A., I, I, this thing really, like, like, changed me a lot. You know, I was a young guy and single, and I met this girl, and, uh, you know, it was like half. I liked her. She was pretty, and when she told me, so what do you do? She goes, well, I'm an A&R person for this record company. And I go, really? Wow. So I'd like to get to know you because aside from being pretty, you know, you never know. So uh, I went out on a date with her. So I was going to take her to this restaurant. So when I, uh, I picked her up, uh, she says, do you mind if we stop here at this club for like 10 minutes uh, and then we can go on the, on the date? And he goes like, sure. So uh, I thought she had to pick up something. So I, uh, and remember, I was a musician, aspiring musician. So now we stop by this club and we go in, she gets in like really easy and she has a great table. And all of a sudden this band comes in and they're playing. And all of a sudden she takes out a pad from her purse without even seeing the band. They, this is the first song of the band. And she starts writing something. The band starts doing the second song and she goes, okay, let's go. And then uh, we left, and I, she goes, what was that about? He goes, oh, this guy's, you know, like, uh, I'm, I'm auditioning. This guy's wanting me to come by and hear them. And then I said, well, wait a second. These guys have been rehearsing all week to play the, the set. This is their careers. This is their lives. And now they got an A&R person for Epic Records coming over. She sits down and gives them less than 10 minutes writes a couple of scribbles and left. She didn't hear the band. Yeah. And now she's going to say, yeah, we're going to pass because whatever. 
And, you know, so I could have been the drummer in that band, sacrificing myself for this girl to come in and just, so that was not a just era. So only some bands made it and many great bands didn't make it that I know I play for a lot of demos in LA of incredible hit songs and they never saw the light of day. So now you have more access to basically put it out. You know, I think, I think another thing that's changed is that music has become, at least popular music has become a lot more derivative. Yes. You, know, you, you get signed now because you sound like somebody else. Whereas maybe in the olden days, 20, 30 years ago, you had a chance to make your own mark because you sounded unique and, and there was, people were more open to this. We had both AM and FM radio. Now we have neither, you know? Yes. I, I think that's changed too. Well, yes. And, and the other thing that has happened now, because we have so many loops and now you can buy sounds and you can buy before what you created, not only as an individual, what you created with a band and meshed together, you couldn't even have a, a thing called separation, you know? So uh, when you actually put, there's a, there's some tracks of John Bonham isolated that is like the, just John Bonham, just the drumming. And you hear the guitars and the bass, and he's actually moaning like. <sighs> so the leakage was amazing. Today, there's no leakage. Everything is like very separated. So that's why a lot of young uh, musicians are bringing back, they call it vintage or retro or whatever. Call it whatever, but it's great. Like, you know, you got jazz guys like uh, uh, Snarky Puppy and uh, what's this other? Um, uh, there, there's a couple of young pianists pianist uh young kids that are like amazing just great great talent there that is raw they don't want no uh vocal pitch correction they don't want no pro tools correction it's like that's why video is so popular because what you see is what you get yeah and video there's, anyway. yeah there's a there's a lot of ways to fix things in recording today which is pure perfection and you know, we've, had, we've had a lot of seminal moments up until now that kind of um i don't know they were like harbingers of things to come. I remember when, I think it was the Fine Young Cannibals, they had a song called She Drives Me Crazy. Yes. They had a, they had a name of the snare, this artificial snare that they were exactly. using. And, and it had a, like a code name. I'm sure there have been many more since then. But I'm like, bloody hell, is that what it's come to now? You know, we got little names for these sounds. And, and sure enough, that's what was coming. Well, you know, this is a really fine point you're making because today, if you're a studio musician or even... Uh, a home studio musician, uh, you get requests like that. You know, you get requests, whether you're a guitar player, so you get, hey, Wally, I want you to uh, play drums on this track. And what I'm looking is, you know, that two and snare, like Fine Young Cannibals, and maybe, <clears throat> but I like that John Bonham bass drum. So you gotta have all that stuff. So now it's not like enough to actually have a lot of drum sets. For example, one example, when I work with Lindsey Buckingham, uh, it was half percussion, half drums. And I was playing a lot of, uh, in the cajon, which is a wooden box that you play percussion on. Uh, I was playing percussion for the acoustic thing. And then I had some samples, some pads with, with sounds and real life symbols. So then it started getting more into more play drums, more play drums. And then we started rehearsing for one of the last tours. And he came to me and says, well, you're not going to play drums all night, are you? Like, I go, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, I would like to actually have different drum sounds per song. So there was like about 20 songs. 
So some of them were on percussion. So I had to create with him 13 drum set sounds. Wow. So basically some number one was like, and the second song, uh, Go Your Own Way, it was like more like Mick Fleet with drum sound. Are you doing that through triggers or programming? Yeah, all the sounds were triggered and composed by Lindsay and I. I uh, we, we, we sat and auditioned every song, every drum sound that he wanted through the system. How much of that do you do in Chicago? Is it, is it your live kit the whole night? or do you, Yeah, you to... but Chicago is different. I, I have an octopad with some sounds, like I trigger timpanis and some claps, some other percussion sound on the drum solo, but it's basically uh, one drum set sound, and the sound guy does the alterations, and on the ballads, I get that big 80s snare drum sound that I put on the side for... Uh, hard habit to break, boom, and then when that's done, I play, play this snare drum over here, and you know, a little bit before your time, the hard habit to break, the ballad era, was that one of Foster's contributions to the band? Exactly. I can't remember if that was him or if that was a trendy thing that everybody was doing. Well. He actually augmented it because uh, a lot of studio players like Jeff Percaro uh, had that deep snare sound on yeah. a lot of sounds. And what happens in music is like, it's like in fashion or in ice creams or food, whatever. Uh, one song is a big hit and has that big snare sound, like Phil Collins sound. I remember when everybody wanted that gated reverb. Yeah. <laughs> like room sound, like, like, like Phil Collins did. So everybody was wanted that until everybody got sick. Police came out with a hit. Everything you got a really high snare sound. So now everybody was requesting high pitched snare sounds like, like Steve Jordan and Stuart Copeland. So you have to have, you know, different snare drums ready all the time. For example, in this set that I have behind me, you know, I have, I have this snare drum right here. Uh, this snare drum. I can actually, I can, it's really kind of medium right now. I'm hitting it just with my thumb. But I can actually detune it to be. Yeah. And then I can crank it up. And take yeah. the time to do it, right? Right. So if, if I only have one snare and they like that snare, it goes, hey, can you give me like a minute? And I just take this the, the key and just crank it up to sounds like a. That's why they introduced the band. Yeah, that's why you want versatile instruments. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, uh, uh, we've got another question here coming uh, about getting started in the business. But before we ask, um, uh, you know, a snare drum sound that I never understood that was so popular was the Van Halen snare. Oh, yeah. It's such a heavy band, but the, it was Templeman, I think, Ted Templeman. The snare was so thin and, I don't know, it just never... It worked for them, but I just, I was always surprised at how popular it was for them. Well, you know, Alex, it, that makes him feel good and that's like his signature. You yeah. know, it's almost like, you know, uh, I remember when Baskin and Robbins had that bubble gum blue ice cream and my son <laughs> loved. I really never liked it, but it sold a lot. So, yeah. so you know, uh, everybody has their own signature and... And sometimes you can identify 
uh, so many. That's why I always tell my wife, because honey, you can buy all the scuba gear you want and women's will always want another parachute and a drummer will always want another snare drum because it's like there's a Instagram page called, I think it's a, 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 a snare addict and it is an addiction. And so I have a collection of snare drums from my family's 1922 Leedy uh, snare drum to uh, right now, there's one coming from Joe Montaneri. You know, I use DW drums, so I mean, they have, I mean, I'm embarrassed if I actually continue to ask for snare drums that I don't need because it, it comes to the point where my closet is full. I cannot just put one more snare drum. And you have to be realistic. I actually have gone down more. I used to have a lot more drum sets in the 90s. Uh, now I just basically, uh, I don't know, I'm just getting older. You get, you keep the best and leave the rest. There you go. Uh, you know, the quality, uh, whether it's wine, life is too short for bad wine, bad drums, bad shoes, bad friends. So basically, just basically, just go for the quality. And if, if it is, it costs a little too much, believe me, go for it. Because it's, it's, you can die and say, yeah, I own one of those. I really got a lot of pleasure. You know, just go for it. You probably get to ask this question a lot. It's from Clark Ellis. How did you start to become a drummer? What would you suggest to, um, to a not so young person who wanted to start? We talked earlier about getting started with the basics at a young age. You recommend the basics for somebody, I don't know how old Clark is, an, an adult person? Well, th that's a good question. I, I was actually teaching earlier today uh, a gentleman that is a really great story. I'm not going to go into it because it's too long, but uh, he actually is retired and his father saved a dollar from his coffee for a whole year and went to the shop and paid for a drum set with $301 bills that he saved all year round from his coffee. So he didn't have coffee at his lunch break to save for his son. So he bought him the set, he's refurbishing the set, and now he's retired, but he wants to play. And uh, yeah, you don't wanna be like a technician if you're not gonna looking to go on tour with an artist and, and please a lot of different artists or, or you know, compete. So basically I have another student that just, uh, he's a successful business person and he plays in church. And he loves it, and, and that's fantastic to play in church. So basically, your purposes are all different. It's never too late to start. But Elvin Jones, person, oh, wait. Elvin yeah, Jones started person, at 20 or something. Time is of the essence if you're older, so maybe play to the song, maybe play to the gig instead of trying to right. master the instrument, right? Yeah, you know, drums that can be for therapy, it can be pleasurable. The word in English is perfect. In Spanish, we don't have the same meaning. P-L-A-Y. Go to the playground. You know, you tell a kid, you grab your toys, let's go to the playground and let's play. Yes! You know what I'm saying? And you so like- the, You don't have the word play in Spanish? And no, it doesn't, it's not, doesn't translate like that. Interesting. You don't, you know, juga, jugando batería, meaning like playing drums. You toca, meaning like you toca drums. Yeah. Play drums is in English. So I love the, the English translation because you, you uh, learn so you can have fun and enjoy yourself. So 
I will definitely teach this person some things when I ask them, what is his purpose? What is it that you want out of playing drums? And then let's see where you're at. And you might have some troubles with some things, but you know, you try to find their forte. And the main thing is to enjoy playing drums and enjoy, make others enjoy your, your drumming. I don't mean to uh, insult you. Do you teach now or are yes. you Yes. Oh, yes. I've always taught. Always taught. So I mean, when I was in the 80s, when I was not a, uh, on the road with Santana, I used to teach at MI and the schools in LA. Yeah. I used to teach privately. Uh, of course, a lot of the work was in sessions and on the road. And then uh, many times when I was not on the road, I used to do clinic tours, which is you start doing clinics in different countries. Like I did a clinic tour that was like all Central America, South America, all the way to Chile, and then New Zealand, Australia, and all of China also. I know your Twitter handle, I think it's your Twitter handle that says educator, but you know, a lot of people say they're an educator, they don't really mean it. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, you learn so much. It's almost like, you know, I'm, I'm the student actually. Yeah. When I, when I teach, it's, it's very challenging. It takes a lot out of me. I actually take more naps after teaching than after playing a show. Do you teach uh, online or just in person? I just started teaching online because I'm forced to because of the coronavirus. So I have a, my, uh, my phone uh, on Zoom or Skype. Yeah. And, you know, it, it sees the whole drum set. But I'm actually going to work a, a situation where I have three GoPros and we can talk like this and then the other cameras, but that's a little more complex. So I have to get that going. Plus right now I'm, I'm, stu I'm starting to uh, teach in Cincinnati at this great drum shop called Badges. And I'm gonna be teaching, they have three drum sets upstairs and percussion and you know, it can be like one-on-one, -on -one, like you're there on the drum set, I'm here on the drum set. And, and uh, it's great. I really enjoy teaching because it, first of all, it's a reminder of to myself to go back and 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 revisit what I'm teaching uh, and and to keep up with myself that's one of the things that I say to people and I know probably a lot of people will ask how do you do it at your age uh, you know to keep up with yourself physically I'm sure athletes and drummers uh, you always got to be learning new stuff learning new techniques and new songs and ways of learning. But basically you have to keep up with yourself. Don't let, for example, like right now, uh, I haven't been playing a lot of big concerts like Chicago, but if I was actually gonna go back and on the road with Chicago, like say like next week, I will start shedding and not jogging, but power walking and basically, I gotta get more in shape to actually do the show that I was doing with Chicago in February. Let's weave this into another question. Uh, remind everybody first how old you are. I'm 64. It's amazing. And Chicago, a Chicago concert is a workout for the drummer. It is, but you know, to me, to tell the truth, like Santana and some other concerts uh, were more of a workout, like with uh, really? Jimmy Barnes was a hard rock, like intense completely. Chicago. It's, it's like dynamic. Okay. So we have ballads and we have 
sections that we stop. And then we have uh, different techniques. Like I can use jazz techniques and some tunes are more Latin. Some tunes are more rockers. Uh, Chicago, I love Chicago. It reminds me a lot of Santana in the way that you do uh, different styles of music within the rock band uh, scenario. You know what I'm saying? I can't so remember. Like, do you leave the stage during Color My World? What was that? I can't remember if you leave the stage during Color My World. Oh, no. Uh, we When I actually was playing percussion with Tris, I started playing the shaker, and I, I decided it was more distracting to leave the stage. Yeah. So I stayed, and I started playing little wind chimes. And, okay. And then I stayed, so now I started playing drums, and the percussionist stays and plays with me. You've answered the question about stamina uh, walking, uh, shedding before the uh, event. Leanne Miller asks, what does your practice regime look like when you're not on the road and has it evolved over the years? Oh, it has evolved. Um, I used to be one of these guys that I'm a little obsessive and I have to watch that sometimes because um, uh, I, I guess obsessive sometimes can be good and sometimes can be bad. Uh, when I started and made a decision to play drums, to become a drummer when I was 13, 14, I basically quit football, I quit judo classes, I didn't even date to go out and dances and hanging out to the movies. It was drums, percussion, learning, percussion, playing with bands, rehearsing, jamming, drums, drums, percussion. I remember my mom coming to the studio and saying, okay, where do you want your dinner, on the snare drum or on the floor tom-tom? And, and, and she goes, mom, got more room. Tom -tom. put it on the floor tom-tom. Can you see? I'm, I'm hungry. Here? I'm really hungry. Put it on a tippity. Yeah, exactly. You know what I'm saying? So, like, uh, so, you know, um, it became an obsession, but then I made it on the high school band. And then when I went to college, I was going to audition for the first chair and when the other drummer which was a friend of mine left i got that chair and then the same thing happened with other gigs okay there's this jobs audition so i have to basically give it all you know and i was just going at one time to music college playing all night long until four in the morning hanging out with other bands like the guys in las vegas right now santa fe and the fat city horns I've known them since. We used to hang out together five, six in the morning, go to breakfast, then go to music theory at eight until 5.30, come back. So basically it was all music. So I, of course, was living at home. What happens is you start getting some success and you're working and I started going on the road with Lola Falana. You have no life. So when you actually take that to a relations with like a girlfriend or family, you cannot have a dog. You cannot even have a plant. It'll die. You know what I'm saying? So basically, um, uh, you you go and you go and you go. And then there was times, you know, that you arrive at a certain point, like you're on the road, say like with Santana or or Steve Winwood, and and you're not doing a side of you that you missed, that you know you have. And that's one when, when when I'm not on the road with Chicago or Santana, I try to play the opposite. That's why I always play the honky tongs. I always play the jazz gigs with brushes, different styles of music. And I take those uh, 
$50 a, a night gigs playing congas all night long because I'm not doing it with, with this other band. So it's, this is like, wow, man, I need to work out. I'm so out of shape. So I always want to stay in shape with every percussion instrument and every drum set. And sometimes that takes time. In sports, they call that cross-training. Yes, cross-training. That's exactly a good word for percussion and drums. So then, for example, now that, you know, I'm newly married, you know, there's time with us together. And so I say to her, you know, I, I got I to gotta go up there. And I got to put some time. And I'm going to put some more time as the tour gets closer because it's not – right now I'm playing with a guitar player, which is great guitarist blues rock guy and he works me out man because the, the is intense music uh and there's a lot of muscle memory learning new songs learning what's on the demo you know it's just it's a physical and then we we play but for to play a two-hour show it's almost like you're ready to play the marathon you cannot just be cooking every day and gardening neil pert just passed away were you a fan oh yes big fan he said that drumming for Rush was like running a marathon while doing mathematical equations. <laughs> yes, because it's a lot of odd times in their music. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I wrote something when Neil Peart passed away. I never met him. Many times I went to DW and his, his drum set was set up over there at DW. Uh, before I moved to LA, I think around 1979, 80, uh, I went to the Performing Arts Theater, which is Planet Hollywood right now in Las Vegas. It used to be the Aladdin Hotel. It used to have a Performing Arts Theater. And because I used to work there all the time, I actually went through the back door and knew the security. And I went in and he goes like, hey, who's playing tonight? He goes, it's a band named Rush. He goes, oh, wow, really? So I went in and I actually was on the side of the stage. And Neil Peart was like there playing. And he was just like, I didn't go anywhere for like an hour. And then one of the one of the guys told me, are you enjoying it? He goes, oh, man, this guy is amazing. And he goes, he also writes the lyrics. And that's when I fell <laughs> off the stage. I, I mean, I basically went like, are you kidding me? I mean, so that's amazing. So his, his drum set, his drumming was tailor fit for the song that they compose. Nobody sits in for Neil Peart at a Rush show. No, because you'll be changing a lot. You know, I mean, somebody will have to imitate and then we'll, we'll have to morph into some new material of Rush that will not be Neil Peart. So that happens with a lot of bands, you know, uh, Dream Theater, it was Mark Portnoy, and now it's, uh, uh, I forgot uh, the name, but, you know, I, I, he's an amazing drummer. But he brings something else to the band. But, you know, it happens to me with, with Santana. Before me, it was Michael Shreve, Gundugo, Leon Chancellor, Chester Thompson, the drummer, Graham Lear. I mean, I adore those guys. So when I sit on the drum chair, it's not like, well, check out what I can do. Forget about them. That was that. Now is now. But no, it's basically you pay respect and you play the tunes. You honor the book and the music and the drumming that they did for all these songs. And you try to make the best out of it. Little by little, if the artist tells you to, he says, hey, man, I like that new fill you play. They go, okay. And, for example, Robert Lance sometimes says, you know, um, you can play something different here. 
I go, and I, sometimes I go, oh my God, I, I love what the original, like with Danny Seraph and playing. And, but they tell me, well, we, we've heard that for so many years. Can you do something different? So you actually take requests from your boss. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, you know, uh, you honor. So I, I said it again and again in many interviews in Chicago. When I sit down, I'm the third drummer that has played with Chicago. So when I sit down on my drum stool, Danny Serafin and Tristan Bowden are there with me. Yeah, that's lovely. I mean, they are. Uh, I think of them because, you know, beginnings. That was Danny Serafin. That was Danny. And then Tris, the way he played some of those tunes and added like this dancing element, you know, like more like funky, dirty kind of. And, and I try to grab that, you know, because like that's what he did. And I love the essence of Danny and Tris. If Lee tells me to play something else or faster or slower or don't do that, then I do whatever I do. And then when I play something that I play and they like it, you know, like Jimmy or something comes going, yeah, I like that. Can you play it like that? Like one time I was playing, uh, I forgot, it was in the country. In the country from Chicago too. And I decided to just play the kick drum on, on four. And this guy's wigged out. I didn't think too much of it. And Jimmy went, man, that's it. Goes, what's it? What? What is it? I was like, <laughs> that kick, you know, that's it. Don't don't ever change that. It goes, oh shit, I cannot go back and play it the way that you know what I'm saying. So did, sometimes did you do something. Do the guys ever get their signals crossed? Like um, Robert will tell you he likes something, and then Jay, Jimmy looks at you odd the next night. Why'd you do that? Oh, it's because oh, yeah. because Robert yeah, that's, me too. <laughs> that's that's a challenge when you have a uh, a band uh when i had like for example it was with carlos it was just carlos and then sometimes there was senior members like chester thompson the keyboard player and you know so you have senior members that will tell you things but it's carlos and it was steve winwood and there was lindsey buckingham yeah of chicago yeah. when i i came in it was walter parasader jimmy lee lockney um robert lamb and the manager has a lot of saying, uh, Peter. Um, so, you know, he, he uh, 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 you know, Peter Schiaparelli sits on the, on the side and he actually has different observations that are, it's not as much musical, but you know, how the audience reacts. So he studies that and then he comes to you and goes, man, when you did that, the audience loves it. And I go, really? Cause I'm not, realizing that as much as he is so he kind of feeds me certain things man that thing that you do with the symbol can you do it more because the audience starts going like that and they they do like a standing ovation almost it goes i go really he goes yeah yeah so double it up he goes okay so i i so you know everybody has different different points of views you mentioned the other day that uh, that lee is now moving into a, a more of a leadership position with the band uh I think people had the impression in the early years, maybe for a long time, Walt was Walter Perizader, who is now largely retired from the band, was one of the founders and perhaps the leader of the band. Uh, was there, were there leaders in between? Have they traded off? Well, 
No, I mean, you know, with Chicago, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of work. Uh, not only keeping up with the music and the, the tunes and recordings and, and all this stuff. And, you know, you, you, uh, you know, new gigs, for example, we were about to do something, a little project with everybody playing in, in, in their own homes. And so, you know, Jimmy still arranges a lot of, and has arranged and composed a lot of the songs. I mean, Robert and Jimmy are in the songwriters hall of fame. That's right. And, and then, uh, but you know, like Lee has taken over a situation where there's a lot of technology that, that, that happens now and the, the leadership in many ways, uh, oh, that doesn't mean that Robert and, and, and Jimmy doesn't have a say or, or, or Walter, what happens is Walter has some health issues that so he was not coming on the road on, on like say like hot, hot month, which will be the summer. So what happened, it was very difficult to come in and come out and come in and come out. So the band, I, I guess, you know, decided to keep it. That doesn't mean he's totally retired, but you know, uh, uh, he's, he's part of the band. Right. You know, he's, he's like Chicago and rightly so. I mean, he was the founder and I mean, I, I love when, when, when I first came in, I remember I met these guys like half hour before we started the, the concert that I'm, it was not, I didn't rehearse with them the first time or anything. I basically just came in, I learned the show. They were gonna have a, they were gonna have a new percussionist coming in. So I knew Tris, we actually worked out the solo a little bit earlier on, but I met the guys like 30 minutes before, Hi, I'm Wally. He goes, hey, how you doing? So I came to the horn players, uh, and and I said, hey, it, is there anything you guys looking specifically from me? You know, I mean, I learned the show. I, you know, I'm gonna go for it. And uh, but anything in particular, you and and, and Walter goes, yes. He goes and he goes like this, grabs me on the shoulder and goes, go out there and have a ball. And I go like, uh, okay, I can do that. So I went out there and just had fun. And, and that's, aside from the music, that goes to show you that these guys are aware that if we were just gonna play our instruments, you can do that in the studio to playing for a wall. But when you have an audience, you feed from the audience. Yeah, is that unusual when you're coming into a band like this? Is it, and maybe you were, auditioning maybe there was a period of time where you become vested in the band but um, the fact that they trusted you they knew you had your shit together is this is this common at this level of the industry or is it oh. unusual? no that they, they didn't trust me and they they didn't know i had my shit together until like after the first second i think after the third show well, they, I was must supposed known, they must have known something they wouldn't let you on stage with them if you didn't have some sort yeah. of I came in as a recommendation, but I was not, I was supposed to do like a week of show or something like that. And then after the third show, Robert came in and so, hi, can I talk to you? He goes, yeah. I go, you sound like you've been with us forever. And he goes, well, to be fair, I bought your first album, CTA. So I've been with you ever since. And I, he said, well, your brother's playing with Zach Brown Band. And if you're not, if you want to hop in the bus and stay with us, man, you're, we'll, we'll, we'll welcome you because you sound like you've been with us forever. I go, well, thank you. That, that was when they went, we want this guy. And, and uh, we feel that he will be good for the band and add. But, you know, that means 
that I went on the road. I, I mean, I was not only playing the show, but after the show, hanging out on the bus. You know what I'm saying? So now, the, you know, you, you see what a musician can do with the crew, how you treat the sound people, how you interact with people, with the audience and all that, aside from your playing. I always say something that it doesn't sound really good, that in this day and age, there's no room for a genius asshole. Yeah. I mean, and there's many. I mean, there's musicians that are amazing. The minute they stand up from the drum set, nobody wants to hang with that person. Yeah. And, and it's just about negativity, and they really bat-mouth people, and they're not really, uh, you know. Uh, so, you know, I... Uh, I always, like I said, I always learn from musicians that I really love, like Abraham Laboreal. I remember when I was young in Los Angeles, uh, Abraham Laboreal Jr. plays with Paul McCartney. And he's just like his dad. He has a smile from here to there. He's a great drummer, great, nice guy. Every time I see him, he's so respectful to everybody. And, but his father, I remember going into the studio and being so nervous. And the minute Abe walked in, the nurse left. Because he made you feel that you were the best guy for the occasion. And it was going to be great. It's going, this is going to be great, man. You know, you sound amazing. Thank you. He was thanking me for being there. And, and I'm going, are you kidding me? Thank you. No, 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 no. Thank you. No, no. Thank you. You know, that kind of thing. And then, you know, it... It, it proves something. You know, one smile can change a lot. Well, if you're in the business 50 years and, and you have a choice of who you play with, I, I would think back to our very first thing we said in this call, you're looking for top talent and you're looking for people who are fun to be around. I get that impression about McCartney's band too. You know, that they're, that they're good guys and that they're team players and they're, they don't bring a lot of baggage with them. I mean, I could be wrong. No, I mean, you know, I, I know uh, Brian, and I, we worked together uh, with Johnny Holiday. He just, uh, you know, is, I know that Paul, he knows probably Paul's music just like, uh, like uh, uh, Neil Haywood with Lindsey Buckingham. I mean, Lindsey sometimes would turn around and goes, what key was this in? And, and you got, a, you got a, a, a person next to you that has the, knows the whole music library from the first record to now that yeah. you have done. Yeah. So, and when they look back, the same thing with Lindsay and Steve Winwood, he would look back and I'm telling you, this is for drummers out there. You think that this is like, Lindsay would turn around and go, Wally, what was the tempo we played last night? And I go, I have all the original tempos, the tempos of the show, because some of them might be slower and faster. Right. Requesting, requested by the artist. So I say, okay, it's like 120. He goes, can we do it like 122 tonight? He goes, yeah, I'll kick it there. And then we will do it that night. And then he'll come after the show. He goes, ah, put it back to 120. I had trouble. Go, okay. So, you know, he knows that last night was 122, but the, the following night, every night is going to be 120. And you have like, like and, and they all relate, you know, all these artists have ways of, requesting the same thing. For example, when, when Lee Lockney, I started playing drum set in 2018, I learned the song, he gave me the, the demos, and oh, okay, it was official. I was gonna play drum set with Chicago. He came to me and went like this, like sh to shake hands, gave me his hand, I shook hand, and he goes, 
congratulations. You're official drummer with the band Chicago. There's one thing that I ask of you. And I said, sure, what is it? He goes, I never want to, wear, to worry where one is after a drum fill. And I said, Lee, you'll never have to worry about where one is after a drum fill. So in other words, what that means, you're there not to show off and be fancy and, and let the drummers know, hey, man, check this out. I'm going to trick the band or play something so crazy. It's not about you. It's about them. You're going to – a drum fill is basically a connection from a verse to a chorus or yeah. from an intro to a pre-chorus. So it's basically you're helping the band sound as best as they can and elevating the song as much as they can, whether the drum set is noticeable or not, it's about the song and the band, and it's not about you. It's uh, that's one of the things that I learned with the older I got. Life is more important now, past the symbols. Before, when I was younger, it was all about before the symbols. Now it's after the symbols. There's humans. There's an audience. There's a band playing after the symbols yeah and before i was just it was before the symbols like what am i doing paradillo right i'm a cue this and that oh i'm gonna do this drum roll i'm gonna freak people out when i play this film but it was all about before the symbols you, you understand what i'm saying i sure do and for those of you that don't understand the symbols are on the periphery of the kit so he's talking yeah. about stuff that happens after the drum kit as opposed to his own little world there Let's talk about this, this song, Old Days, because I got Neil Peart on my brain now and talking <laughs> to you. And Old Days is a very interesting drum part because this is Seraphine now, back in the day. He's got some fantastic roles I, I, and, and, and figures that are happening. Almost mathematical precision on the way to one. Um, and a little pet peeve of mine, and what do I know? I've, I've always thought it was almost a little bit over-engineered in terms of busyness. But when I talk to drummers, they say, no, man, that's perfection. Well, it, it's all beauties in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. You know, it's all what the band, you know, uh, Danny was a member in the band. So, you know, he probably had more liberties that Tris and I had. Uh, when you actually are hired by a band, and you actually is about what they what they love. You know, I'm I'm working with Dudley right now, and immediately I start listening. You know, we drummers have it's fifty percent playing, fifty percent listening. Not only to the music and learning, but what the artist is about and what they want. For example, the minute he says, "Man, I love these guys like that play like sometimes like they don't know how to play like, like you know like they're just so funky." And it's just about the beat and the attitude. You know, that doesn't take a lot of chops. It just takes a lot of heart. That doesn't mean that the guys with chops don't have heart. But, you know, like in the words of Steve Ferroni on a, on a drum clinic, he goes, you know, you are so, so simple. And sometimes there's uh, um, opportunities to play a drum fill, but you keep on going and don't even crash on the one. And he goes, well, the way I think is if you have the urge to play a drum fill, Jones. <laughs> That's funny. Because if, if you want to play a drum fill, you think that there's a drum fill that is going to don't because you cannot never, you can never go bad with groove. You can play a groove all the way. Okay. You could have done this. You could have done that. 
but you know, the opposite can hold. Uh, one of the things that I try to do with Chicago, uh, there's a song, um, uh, Dialogue. So it's like, you know, I can't hum it right now, but uh, uh, there's some drum fills. So how I try to do the drum fills, if you're playing, so basically when you play a drum fill, you abandon the groove. So if you're gonna play a drum fill, there's two different ways. To continue grooving or to stop the groove. I gotta play a drum fill. I'll be right back. Oh, okay, I'm back. <laughs> you know, that's a no-no to me yeah. because my dad, I came up in Las Vegas. I, I, I play for a lot of dancers. And my dad always told me, never disturb the dancer. That's murder. If you're in the dance floor and they tell you, let's give the drummer some, and you go into some roles and stuff like that, and the dance floor goes to the bathroom and leaves to get a drink, you're not going to be back. You're not going to get paid. Then you're, that's the last night because but if the dancers stay, then you play a groove, a song, and all of a sudden you play a drum solo. Like in Latin music, even though there's timbale solos and conga solos and all that, the dance floor, there's always a dance floor with dancers. So if I do, so I never abandon the groove. So that's my mentality. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know, a real simple example of this is if you're hitting the hi-hat on every beat and you leave that, you leave that stroke to do a fill. Exactly. You're abandoning exactly. The, the, the structure well, of the song, right? That's very important because, for example, I don't know if you hear me, but you can go. Right? Yeah. Or you can go. You hear the difference? Yes. I keep the hi-hat with time all the time. Yes. That's one of the things that I learned in my college jazz ensemble. My teacher used to tell me, Wally, you know what I like about you? What? <laughs> you know, he was a tough teacher. When he told me that, I thought like, am I nice? Do I talk soft? Or do I get you coffee in the morning? What was goes, it? No matter what, you always have the hi-hat on two and four. And that really helps the band. So basically, if you're going... You know, you're going like, you know, you always, if the, the trumpet players and the horn players basically one time in college told me, you know, I don't give a shit. If you play a Radham and Q, Paradiddle, whatever, rudiments, really, I don't give a shit. All I know is <laughs> you're playing the two and four and I, I'm counting four bars. And at the end of the fourth bar, I have to go. <sighs> and if you're not there and you confuse me, I'm going to mess up and I'm going to look bad. Yeah. So when they told me that, I went like, thank you very much. Uh, because that's really important. That's what Lee meant about drum fills. Yeah. And, and I'm very aware. You know, uh, I actually have decreased a lot of the drum fills, like say on a tune like beginning. And basically... Um, it's really hard to explain. Like, you know, Robert sometimes requests that I do no drum fill. He would be happy if probably uh, beginnings is all like this, you know.
but you know, the song is not like that. The song has yeah. when I'm with you. So, you know, Danny had a lot of energy and I love those drum fills and all that, but you know, like uh, now the band, you know, and I always have to honor the composer. Robert's the composer, Jimmy's the composer, Lee's the composer. So what do they want? Yeah. Sometimes it's fine with Jimmy that something's being done like that, but it's Robert's song. Yeah. So I remember when I was playing percussion one time, Jimmy said, you know, don't play congas on this tune. And then Robert said, go like, what, what was that? I go, well, you know, like Jimmy didn't want on that tune, the congas. And Robert goes, oh, I love congas. You know, maybe if he was the composer, he would have congas. Yeah. So basically, you're the composer. What do you want on your song? It's your baby, you know? Yeah. A little sidebar, Wally. Uh, we, I love that you're playing, but for some reason the drums aren't coming out. I don't know if they're overriding your microphone or what's happening. Really? You don't hear them? No. Uh, they, they start to play and then they, they disappear. Ah, so you don't hear this? Keep playing. Yeah, see, now it's gone. Huh? I heard the first few strokes and then it goes... Ah, so I'm sorry about that. I guess, uh, and my telephone Zoom... From my telephone microphone, it picks up the drums. I still get a feel because I can see you doing it, but it's just not uh, coming through like. Oh, you. I'm sorry. Well, I okay. thought, I thought that. Uh, so yeah, on, on some Skype, you can actually play and you can kind of do it. Let's stay on music for a minute. Um, I think Chicago has a particularly challenging book. Maybe not as challenging as Rush, but you're not exactly a one-four-five backbeat kind of a band. And a lot of bands, when they start the concert, they'll play a, an easier song because they're getting levels and getting used to the stage and stuff. You guys have been opening with a very difficult song for a long time, Introduction. Yeah. Not only because of the theme of the song, but the title. And it actually says hello to the audience. But it's a bitch to play, I would think. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Harder than others to play and... Is there a song every night that you've got to actually focus on a little bit harder than some of the others, or does that song move around on you? Um, uh, you know, I didn't put too much thought into it, but yeah, uh, the, the ballet is definitely something that you have to shed. Uh, even though I was playing the song on percussion, you know, when I came into this band, people asked me, what's the transition before, uh, with percussion to drums? And it's almost like you're on the same road, but on a different car. So now you're driving another car. You already know the road because you're driving, and you, you're, but now you're, you've got different gears, and you've got to learn a couple of other things. It's a learning curve. So the ballet, it was challenging. Uh, it's always challenging every night. Uh, introduction is one, uh, and I try to make it towards even more challenging. You know, sometimes uh, there's a... Uh, there's little areas where instead of going to I go try to bring different things or you actually made it complicated. Yeah, that little bossa nova part uh, where Lee's solo. Sometimes the other day, one time I started like hip hopping it a lot more and like Robert went like, whoa. So that's more even like like today, 2020, you know, like the part that goes to instead of sounding like a bossa nova you can actually put a little rap part into that i want to tell you i want to tell you that but 
So, you know, I can hear the rap, but the trumpet is playing. You know what I'm saying? Well, so, yeah. you know. After 50 years, they're probably grateful for any kind of change up. Yeah, but that, that is, doesn't, that is true still to the song. I don't yeah. want to, it's still introduction. And I love the original. I mean, you know, there's so many songs that I love uh, from from that era. And there's another one, of course, you know, the, the entrance to, uh, you mentioned it, uh, is it, uh, um, is it Old Days? No, not Old Days. Uh, da, 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 da. So, so it's like a bar of three. The bar of five yeah. and a bar of three. So, you know, Chicago always added little uh, odd times. But one thing I love about Chicago that you don't get, like with Rush and Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Yes and a lot of bands that I love because of their odd time signature, you can't dance to them. Yeah. You know, it's about. It's like. Wow, that's amazing. It doesn't go like, and you know, sometimes I want to like go like, oh man, that's odd. You know, that's odd time signature and it's really difficult, but I'm going like, yeah, you know. So um, there, I always want to put something, uh, some kind of like funkiness, even if it's odd time or it's difficult, or even if it is classical, Ravel's Bolero. Even though you're playing with a symphony with a tuxedo, I want it to be funky. I want it to feel like it's soulful. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't. I don't know when the what the first big hit was. That was a different time signature, but it. It. it I would think it's Take Five by the Brubeck Band. Exactly. And people lost their minds because it was showy, but it was also very accessible. Right. Uh, and yeah, most. That, a lot of time signature changes are not accessible. Exactly, and take five is kind of like the uh, on introduction. There's a, a part like that, you know. Yeah. And um, the, the, also the beginning of uh, time. That was kind of like a take five thing. A lot of people don't realize that it's like in five. Okay. You know, the beginning intro of time. What yes. is, does anybody really know what time it is? And also another challenging thing is uh, um, at the end, you know, some of those rock tunes at the end of the night, I added uh, like a little double bass drum and that kind of thing, which is this challenge. It's basically now I feel like I'm playing with a hard rock band. Wow. So here we go from Dave Brubeck to a Bossa Nova, a little hip hop, to jazz, to Latin, to you gotta have jazz sensibilities, pop sensibilities, you know, commercial music sensibility, classical, the ballet. Yeah. But basically Chicago really touches everything. I know. So Lee Lofnane did a, um, one of those isolation videos with a bunch of trumpeters from around the world. I don't, I, I don't think- Oh, with Doc Severinsen. Were they paying tribute to somebody or yeah. was it Doc? Yeah, Doc Severinsen, I think, and Arturo Sandoval. Okay. Yeah, but I, what were they paying tribute to? I don't remember. It was either, I can't remember, but it was a nice little thing. You mentioned yeah, Chicago's getting ready to do the same thing. 
uh, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong, but it was uh, the famous uh, classical trumpet player. But I, I'm, I can't remember right now. But I remember when he was doing it. He was really excited. Yeah. And he's bringing that to the band, to your band. What was that? And he's bringing it to your band. You guys are about to do an isolation video? Yeah, we're going to play some songs. Um, I'm going to play them from here on this drum set. I wish you could see the whole drum set. So this is my graffiti set. It's a DW set that I used my first tour with Santana, with Jimmy Barnes. And then uh, I put it away, and then I refurbished it. And it's on my, my Jamming at the Baked Potato CD. So if you... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, the Jamming Out the Baked Potato CD is my little band in L.A. that we used to do covers. So I used to finish a Chicago tour, and I used to book some clubs, and then we play covers of songs we like. You are inexhaustible. I, I, I watch you on Twitter, and you, you, know, you just get off the road, and you're playing again someplace. You, you clearly love what you do. Yes, I, you have to. Um, there's no retirement in music. I would say... If you want to learn how to play drums, there's a starting point and there's no ending. So um, I think that it's not only the physical, but the mind. You've got to, the muscle memory, you've got, to, you've got to floss. The dentist tells you, floss, the more you floss, the more you live. Well, the more you floss your musical brain. Um, my dad is 86 and he's still excited. He, he, he invades me with stuff. Hey, have you heard this guy? And there's like a YouTube link. Hey, I was watching this kid the other day. So, so he still keeps up and he gets motivated. Is your dad still in Vegas? Uh, no, he lives in Concord, California. He's okay. 86. It's going to be 87 in June 16. Wow. Uh, Glenn Sterling wants to know, what, if anything, uh, outside of music, are you passionate about? Do you have time to do anything? Uh, well, you know, when I, actually, when, when I was little, I wanted to be a veterinarian. Because uh, some guys start really early with pots and pans, and that's it. But I wanted to be Dr. Doolittle. I wanted to heal the animals until I discover girls and going to dances and rock and roll came in the scene and fashion. And then I went to a dance, and I went, when I saw this band, I went, I want to do that. He goes, Dad, can you teach me how to play drums? Uh, and then he started me with solfeggio, and he, I said, no way. And then I started back again the second time. I always loved art. So uh, through, through my life, living in LA, I discovered early on that I like to refurbish. I, I didn't know it was called flipping, but when I was 21, I bought my first townhouse. And then I, I put plans and I painted it and I changed it. And so I, I sold it and then I bought my house in LA from framing stage. So I did everything in that house. Then I, I got married, had three beautiful kids, uh, Joseph, which is a drummer, artist, Liliana, which plays percussion and sings with George Benson and other artists, and Gabriel, which is a bartender in LA, and uh, basically he's a great talent also. So, you know, throughout that period, you know, houses and refurbishing and all that, I always in LA kept on doing that. So I almost, at one point, I went to real estate school and not to sit in an office and sell real estate, but I loved traveling to places and seeing like the difference of architecture. And, and so I, I would definitely would have done that. And, and I'm in it. I mean, I, we just got this 1886 house has a lot of history in a, in a historic district. 
old houses need a lot of hugs. So uh, you got to always keep up, you know, with a little Band-Aid or fix this or whatever. But I love that to, to tra transform. And the same thing I do with instruments, you know, with this drum set, it was refurbished. And um, so I, real estate would be one thing. Now, as far as, as far as uh, hobbies, I remember there was a question, uh, you know, earlier on in my life, uh, what music demands so much time from a musician. Like you want to compose music and co-write music and keep up with your instrument. I made physical drumming my sport. I made collecting musical instruments, percussion, uh, my hobby. And I made playing drum set with different musics, my therapy, and going out with artists and recording sessions and social uh, being in the business, my career. Yeah. And so, you know, I made uh, everything in drumming has something that it can give me. What's that old saying? Uh, music is a demanding mistress. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's funny you said that because when I go on the road with Chicago, I'm playing my, uh, I call it my beach land set, which is like blue and, and brown and has like elements. It's a tribute to my wife because she's a scuba diver. And it looks like a beach in the Caribbean, the drum set. And it's a mapa pearl wood. When I come to the house and I get my bags in and I come to my third floor, this drum set goes, you have not touched me. You have not played me. You have not paid attention to me. And when you sit on the drum stool, you want me to do what? And, you know, I'm going to play the drum set. And I, oh, my God, it sounds like shit. And she goes, there you go. You don't pay attention to me. Spend some time with me and you'll sound you good. You don't look at me anymore. That's right. <laughs> so, so then I have like a few in the basement saying the same thing. Wally. My congas, my percussion. My timbales, right here, it's like, how, what about me? You know, they like kids, what about me? So sometimes I sit and I actually go, okay, man, I haven't played hand drums in a long time. I'm gonna put a salsa records and I'm gonna go at it. I don't have a job. I don't have to do this, but I need to do this because I need loss. I love it. Let's talk about the road. You guys are getting ready to go back out. Do you have a date yet? Oh no, we have, you know, it all depends on the situation with the COVID-19. Uh, uh, all the tours, period, were canceled. And it was not because of the bands, because mostly like Light Nation couldn't find a way to, you know, you can't make money if you bring the crew, the band, the buses, all the trucks, and, and there's only half the audience, you know, socially distant. You think you could lose the whole year? Uh, I don't think Chicago will do that. The only way that we can do that if, if there's a spike on the pandemic and things start not healing for the best. Uh, we have uh, gigs on September, November, December. Okay. So, and then the tour has been postponed uh, with the, I don't know, Rick Springfield is not going to open because he cannot do it next year. Like as he was going to do it with us, but we're going to start in June, July, August, the next year. So that's booked, but Chicago, we're planning to do uh, smaller venues, uh, September, October, November. And, uh, uh, the only thing that can stop it is, 
uh, more a disastrous situation. Let's talk about these unusual pairings. I know you've been out with Earth, Wind & Fire, REO Speedwagon. I think you've been out with EWF multiple times. Yes. Uh, Rick Springfield, everybody thought was kind of an odd match, but we're never going to see how that's going to go. Oh, he's a rocker. Yes. Oh, yeah. He has the hits, and the ladies love this guy. I mean, I, uh, my wife and all the women in my family already have bought tickets before they even asked me to put them on the guest list. But what's fun about the other, the other double bills is they always, the bands always come out together, and you could see Earth, Wind & Fire, which was also a horn band, on stage. Even uh, somebody, I imagine Jimmy, worked up some horn arrangements for some REO songs. How does that work with somebody like Rick Springfield? Oh, we, uh, we hadn't planned that far. What happens is um, 2012, uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, I think it was 2014, we did a Earth, & Fire tour. Maybe not, 16, I'm sorry. Uh, and they, what happens when, I, when, when the other band comes to sit in with us, they have to stay on the venue for a long time and wait. So a lot of the bands decided, nah, like for example, the last time we played with the Doobie Brothers, we used to play six songs together. But for whatever reason, uh, they decided we're going to play our show and we got to go to the next town or whatever. We I mean, they, would, they would open or somebody would open and then they'd have to wait up backstage and for the next time they could come out. Yeah, which, be at, which would mean at the end of the show. So Earth, Wind & Fire, REO, we did it with REO, we did it with the Doobie Brothers. Uh, but then, you know, uh, I don't know if it was the Doobie Brothers, Last time, they didn't want to do it. They just wanted to keep on going. So I, I don't know what was going to happen with Rick Springfield. You know, it's really great. I think the audience loves it. I, we used to do that with Steve Winwood when we used to open with the Grateful Dead. Uh, Jerry Garcia used to sit in with us, and Steve used to sit in with them. That's an interesting pairing, too. Yeah, it's a great spirit, you know, because uh, actually that's how I got the, the job with Santana. I used to play with David Lindley, which was a slide guitar player for Jackson Brown. And we opened for Santana and the Grateful Dead. Uh, Jerry Garcia loved David Lindley. So we opened uh, shows with the Grateful Dead. Later on with Steve Winwood with Traffic, we did 11 stadium shows with the Grateful Dead. It was like 100 something thousand people. Wow. And it was a really, really great experience in 94. And a lot of people don't know this and I, I don't really talk about it because it just didn't happen. But I really, really, got really sad I knew Jerry Garcia because he brought Lindley to the to the picture I got the Santana job because of Jerry Garcia inviting David Lindley and I met Carlos later on with Steve Winwood so I always would hang out with Jerry Jerry was always one of the first the only guys from the Grateful Dead that will be there from the beginning when you arrive really early to to play your show he was there already and he enjoyed your whole show huh. and so I got to sit down and talk a lot with Jerry Garcia and he sounded me to play in his band and after the traffic tour 94 uh, we were gonna do it uh, so the the traffic tour was gonna end and then uh, later on we were gonna get together somewhere probably in the Bay Area he had some tunes and he passed away yeah so that's one of the things that I, I was really sad because the thing that really saddened me is that, and, and is that's in YouTube, uh, Dear Mr. Fantasy with Jerry Garcia and Traffic. Um, 
uh, he uh, invited me to his dressing room and he had a green shake. I mean, he had fruit and he was a, to the health kick, you know, so he was really like clean, cleaning his life. And I remember he was making me, you want, want a green shake? And I went like, what's in it? He goes like, man, it's like spinach and this and all these veggies and spirulina, this and that. I go, I'll try it. And, you know, I went like, mm, okay, I guess this is healthy for me. <laughs> but, you know, when, when he went into rehab and his, his body couldn't take it, I was like, man, you know, drugs can get, it's just so, it's a, such a strong hold, you know. And oh, after a while. When he passed, how old was he? I don't know. It was uh, 19, I think the beginning of 95, I think, or the end Probably of 95. said goodbye to a lot of talented people too early. Yes. And then later on, we opened with Steve Winwood with The Dead. They didn't call it The Grateful Dead. It was The Dead. And of course, the band sounded great. Also, it was with uh, Warren Haynes and uh, uh, different artists, invited artists. And, you know, yeah, it's like some great times hanging out. And then I would sit, sit with um, Cafe, the percussionist with, with Steve Winwood. And I would sit with Mickey Hart and, and, and Kurtzman on the percussion solo. And that would be incredible because they have some huge percussion setup. And uh, it was really funny. Later on, I got, because of that, I got to play with uh, Mickey Hart's uh, All-Star Tour, uh, which a lot of jam band tour uh, guys, like uh, uh, George uh, Porter from The Meters and Sikiru, great talking drummer. So, you know, it was like a really great tour. And, you know, I'm, I'm really, really blessed and lucky to have met and play with musicians that once upon a time I was looking at the records going, wow, check this guys out or looking at, at the television. I don't know why it happened. I, I don't know, maybe a, what do you call it? A, a attraction. Um, and, and sometimes you just gotta maybe go towards where things are happening. Uh, somebody told me one time, uh, if you're in the sweater business, don't move to the Sahara Desert. Right. And so what he tried to tell me is like, uh, if you're in the music business, today's a little different. You can do so much from home. You can do things and you're in the middle of the forest in Alaska. You can still do a record and, and people can play on your tracks and they, you can send things to each other. Yeah. So today's a little different, but still, I believe LA, Nashville, and uh, New York City are still big, huge centers of the arts, of the business. Uh, even though Seattle has great music and San Francisco and Austin, yeah, you can, all over the United States, there's some scenarios. But as far as the business, that's why the Grammys, the Oscars, the American Music Award, all that stuff is done there and in Nashville and New York City. So I moved from Las Vegas to LA uh, I could have stayed in Las Vegas and that was a turning point in my life because I had a maid in Las Vegas. I was working with Lola Falana, Connie Stevens, uh, this show over there, that show over there. I had my townhouse, tennis courts, pool during the day. I said, man, this is the life, but that's not what I wanted to do. Uh, so my friends that had moved to LA were going, hey man, uh, this is Steve Gatto's over here. You know who's playing over here, recording. And 
And I got called, I remember my friend Carlos Vega recommended me to play for this band, Caldera, and the leader called me and I was in Las Vegas and he goes, hey, Carlos Vega, I go, recommended you go, oh my God, yeah, you know, I love Carlos Vega, great studio drummer, a friend of mine. And, and the guy goes, so when are you gonna be back in town so we can start rehearsals? And I said, what do you mean back in town? I live in Las Vegas. And he goes, oh, no, I, I can't have that. You know, I gotta have all the guys here in LA uh, accessible. And I packed my townhouse, and the first gig that I had, which was with Ben Marine, I told Ben, do you mind if I fly out of Los Angeles instead of Las Vegas? He said, no. And I moved to LA. And, and I had, uh, it was Ben Marine and then Marilyn McCoo, and Marilyn can work, Marilyn worked less. So it was great just to pay my car payment, my apartment, rent, and the rest of the time I was in LA. And it was paying dues 1980, 1981, 1982, 1983, a lot of people don't hang that long. Yeah. 1984, I got a break with Tanya Maria, play all the jazz festivals around the world, met a lot of people. And then from there, I got hired to uh, go with David Lindley, which I met Jackson Brown and all that. So from 84, it was like, but you know, sometimes some people, you can't take three years, you know, paying dues, you know, and sometimes you have to. Do you have a favorite tour of all time? Like maybe Man. it was a time in your life. Maybe it was the people you were with. Maybe it was the artist. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say favorite tour. You know, I did so many different from each other kind of tours. And uh, some of them, for different reasons, they were favorites. For example, I, I did a, a little tour with Carl Verheyen, which is a guitar player uh, with Supertramp, and Dave Murata, great bass player in LA, that played with a lot of sessions, Colby Calais, uh, Phil Collins. And it was just the three of us, and we went all over from south of Italy to the north of Italy into Austria, and just played bed and breakfast, played clubs, got to know the people, great cuisine, great wine, pack up the van, go to another place and it was just like you stayed in this bed and breakfast in little towns and it was no stadiums there was no roadies it was just i got to learn and, and know italy from beginning i mean from from puglia calabria all the way in napoli rome florence all the way to uh lago di garda that sounds and like then a great premise for a netflix series oh yeah and then there's the, the tours that I play with Santana, Rock and Rio for like 250,000 people. That was an amazing situation. And Johnny Halliday, half a million people in front of the Eiffel Tower in France. That was an amazing tour. Unfortunately, uh, I was going through my divorce and I didn't see my kids in five months. So that was a really painful, but really great tour. Uh, with Steve Winwood was fantastic. I love Steve because uh, He's a total musician and really super guy. Um, he's a, I, I he's one of the rare guys that got started really young and didn't fall into the quicksand, you know? Yes. I Well, Steve is amazing. You know, he his first hit was Give Me, I mean, Keep On Running, but then uh, uh, Give Me Some Lovin'. Yeah. I think he was 16 or 17, and then I'm a Man, he wrote that Chicago does. Uh, when he was 17, he could have retired with that, yeah. but he continued and then traffic and then the, the album, um, 
Ark of the Diver that has the hit, uh, when you, while you see a chance, take yeah. it, when you see a chance. romance. I asked him what time, I said, like, Steve, who's playing drums? Andy Numer? He goes, no, I played drums. I played everything. <laughs> he played everything. Engineered everything. So That, that was his uh, big comeback album. That was his big story that right. we were getting into that place where you could, you could, uh, you could be the multi-instrumentalist on your own album. You have to add some skills, some chops on all of that. He was one of the first, of course, people make a big deal out of other artists, you know, and that's, that's fantastic. But Steve, he's just a humble guy. Yeah. He doesn't advertise it. And you don't see him in YouTube playing drums and playing timbales and playing percussion, yeah. playing yeah. saxophone, bass, guitar. He doesn't do that. He could do it, but he was one of the few artists that did it all and wrote the songs and still knows how to engineer, which Did a lot of artists- nightmare tours? What was that? Did you have any nightmare tours? Um, not that I can think of right now. I mean, there's always nightmares on traveling sometimes. Um, you know, I've done things where, you know, it, it becomes, that's like to write a book on comedy. Um, you know, like I'm, I was supposed to, I was doing a drum clinic. I was, I was booked to do this big drum festival in Montreal. And I was in the middle of recording with Steve in London, north of London. And Steve told me, well, you know, and if we have a few days off. You can go and do your, your drum festival uh, with Raul Reco, the percussion that it was with Santana, and then fly back and we continue the, the album. So I went to the airport and there was a lightning storm or something like that. And, they told, and I was in the airport, it was 11 o'clock at night. They told me, no, no airplanes. I go, well, what am I supposed to do now? And so because it was a weather-related thing, they were not going to put me in a hotel. So I actually basically grabbed my, my backpack and went into one of those counters around 12 midnight and made a bed right there on the counter and basically just went to sleep until 6 in the morning. The guys came to open the counter, and the, the woman went, goes like, ah! Whoop! You know, like I was sleeping right behind the counter. I got up went to the gift shop bought a toothbrush got some uh what's it called uh there's a, a donut place in in canada uh, uh, uh it was like a hockey player but it's like really important yes exactly more uh, tim Morton. um i'm like tim horton yeah so i i i did one of these cups like this yeah and uh two donuts and and uh it was like a nightmare trying to get back and another nightmare was after 9-11, I had a book, I had a tour book of 10 countries in Europe. It was, I had played a, a Latin Grammy tribute uh, with Arturo Sandoval and all these guys in, in, in LA. 9-11 happened, they closed everything and I needed to do this tour to make my money. So six days after 9-11, I went to LAX, there was nobody, the military. I got the ticket, I arrived at the gate and they told me the plane will be here in six hours. I said like six hours? So I was there camping out with a couple of guys for six hours. By the time I got to Dallas, it was nighttime, I had to get an hotel. I arrived two days later to Europe and missed a couple of clinics. But you know, traveling is where the nightmare part happens. Yeah. Because uh, 
because you're dealing with professionals for the show, you've got, you've got redundancy built into the program. You've got resources, people that know what they're doing. Let's talk about that for a minute before we wrap up. The, the actual uh, cavalcade of buses with Chicago, you guys go by bus mostly now? I think the whole industry after 9-11, uh, if I would have had money back then, I would have invested in the, in the bus because I saw it. I just saw it. I, a lot of artists, you wouldn't believe how many artists that never they liked for, They went to buses for safety reasons? Yeah. Somebody told me they went because it was greener, that, that it was just more comfortable to deal with buses than airport problems. Well, yeah, it is. And also, uh, you can leave the hotel in your pajamas and hop in the bus and go back to sleep. And then at the airport after 9-11 with the TSA and all that, with Santana in 1989, we used to fly the same day of the show. That is a no-no in today's world. Yes. You cannot do that. But in 1989, we would go in the morning, go to the airport, hop on a plane, arrive to the next city, check in into the hotel, take a nap, grab a bite, and go to the venue. Yeah. And then go back to the hotel. That is a no-no. And so the buses uh, with Chicago, for example, we leave after the show. We check, we check out of the hotel. Uh, Chicago oh, does a sound check. Back up. Um, you, you usually do a VIP thing. You're very good to your fans. You do a VIP greeting, meet and greet. Is that after the show or before? Before and after. Why both? Because it's too many people. Okay, so is it the same shindig before and after? Yeah, it's just that sometimes the line, we would be like one hour standing before the show. We have a show to play. So okay. we, have, uh, we don't sound check because the, the crew sound checks for us. And the, and the sound guy uh, balances the sound with a CD of our show. So and the so first time you walk on stage is, is coming onto the concert to start introduction. Exactly. I never get to touch my drums other than the first introduction is the first beat. And wow. 25 or 6 to 4 is the last beat. And then I'll see my drums again on first beat of introduction. Wow. Unless I come in early by myself and want to do a little bit of work on the drums. That's uh, a level of comfort with your technician. Yes. So what happens is, and trust, and, and so what happens is we arrive to the show like around 6.15, 6.30. We do, uh, say, like, you know, 7 o'clock meet and greet, and then 8 o'clock show, we have catering. And then after that, we hop on the bus after the second meet and greet. We hop on the bus and travel at night because now the bus drivers they have no traffic. Yeah, there's no, uh, during the so day. Are you guys too wound up to sleep? Are you, what time does everybody hit the sack? Oh, it all depends. Uh, usually, uh, because we don't have a sound check, you can actually sleep longer. Some of us sometimes, it varies. Sometimes around, you know, I, I talk on the phone or I check my messages or uh, do something. Tweet. Uh, which is a, another point of view. You either, Jason Chef one time told me, you know, with this schedule, you have a choice. You either can hang or you, you ask yourself, what creative and positive things can I do the minute I finish with Chicago until the next day that I go back to the venue? You have yeah. a long time. So that's when I started writing. You could easily get into vegetation mode. Exactly. So, you know, the never waste time. So I, that's why I did two CDs. My, 
well, uh, Wally World CD and my jamming at the baked potato I did on the road in between. You know, I got the mixes, I was listening to mixes, making decisions. You know, I, I, I like to work and be creative while I'm in, the, in my bunk. So or how, many, how many buses are there? Uh, we have three buses, the originals, uh, and now we have an extra a band member uh, when Neil came in the band and, and Brett is playing bass. So we have uh, uh, Lee and Robert and our tour manager and our saxophone player on the first one, uh, Lou, Keith, our guitarist, and Jimmy on the second one, and our percussionist, lead singer, bass player, and me on the third one. Pretty cool. Yeah, so we have a lot of space. And see, this guy's the one thing about Chicago that I noticed from the get-go. I mean, I've done so many jobs. There's some artists that have more class than others. So like, and, and, and that's the reason why it's a success because these guys, they said, okay, if we have to suffer on the road. And so no, number one rule, you don't go out on the road like the, like the old days. And this was true with Santana, uh, that you'll destroy relationships with your kids, with your dog, with your wife, with, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, those days of going on the road, like Alanis Morris said when she arrived to get her, her Grammy for that first album, she was not there. She had been on the road 300 and something days a year, and she, she wasn't there to receive her Grammy, and she burned out. So, like, what happens is this guy's going on the road, like, four weeks is the maximum you come home. You know, there's not going to be, like, the kids going, Mom, who's this guy that just came in, pat me in the head and left? Oh, honey, that's your dad. Yeah, that's not gonna happen. Yeah. You know, so these guys they learn the what to do and what not to do, and that's how you keep a, a band uh, healthy, morally and physically. And uh, in the old days, uh, physical exhaustion and drugs to go up and drugs to go down kill half the business. I kid you not. If you really start looking at the real, real situation whether alcoholism or drug taken or blow whatever you know divorces this and that you know it destroys you so why do great beautiful music if you're and for the audience if your other side is hurting i mean i know you need material to write hurting love songs but you know it's not a good way to do it to be the the guinea pig well, so that's really important i think this is evident uh, and, and we'll wrap up man you've been so great with your time uh, this is really evident in the Chicago shows because you guys look like you're having a blast. Um, I'm sure there's a little bit of stagecraft going on because somebody's got, in, in, a, in a large band like that, somebody's got a, a headache or a tummy ache that night. Oh. But I, I'll be damned if I can ever tell who. And it's, uh, it's my favorite concert act of all time. The very first band I saw way before you were in the band was Chicago. And... Uh, you're just legends, man. The, uh, the, the, the kudos and the, the uh, awards keep ramping up, and, and you're one of the guys that keeps it going. Well, thank you so much. You know, you've been uh, the, the really great questions. From, uh, I want to thank the, the fans that send the questions. And, you know, I'll, I'll go also in the social media. And I'm, I'm always answering because, you know, th that word is so powerful to me, pass it forward. If sometimes I can just 
I'm sure you feel the same way. You can put something out there that somebody can go, oh my God. So that's how, what it is. And you can actually help somebody and have somebody not make the same mistake or go the, the difficult road that you did by, uh, by trial and error. You know, I love that. When, when actually I get uh, people writing me and I don't know who, who they are. And he goes, man, you said something. When I was eight years old in Santo Domingo, my dad took me to a clinic and you said something and I took too hard and I graduated from Berkeley School of Music and I go like, oh my God, I feel old. <laughs> well, you also feel I made a difference. It's the essence of life, isn't it? Yes. I mean, you know, so it's like the more, the older you get, the more experiences you have. And uh, it's a lot of fun. I've been actually, has been really therapeutic for me and even incredible to actually uh, read it back. And a lot of people have been saying, man, you got to write a book, you got to write a book. So I've been putting part one, part two, then part three and part four. Part three is going to be the 90s and then the, the millennium years uh, in my, uh, because, you know, people are asking, are asking me, uh, how did you start the business? What do you play for? This and that. So I actually started in my years in Vegas in the 70s. And then I started the, the, the last one on eight, uh, the 80s was on Facebook. Then I want to write the 90s. But when you actually start realizing that you have really sped up your life really quickly, uh, the in-between stories and, and anecdotes and um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, trials and tribulations would be good material for a book. Well, that's going to put you on the speaking circuit too, my friend. I'll need help. I'll help you. Uh, but we have to, first we have to kick Kenny Arnoff off the motivational speaking circuit. I, I love Kenny. Uh, he is so, uh, one time he was doing a clinic. And um, so I, I always looked up to Kenny because uh, at one time, you know, he was in John Mellencamp band and he's a total, total all around percussionist drummer. And then he started getting all these gigs over here and all these gigs over there and all these gigs over there. And then I, uh, we did a clinic together where we hung out. So I was Terry Bozio. Uh, I was myself, Kenny Aronoff and Terry Bozio, right? Yeah. And so uh, I did my clinic. But while we were setting up, uh, Kenny was doing his drums and, you know, we we're all tweaking our drums and all that. And he goes, hey, man, are you done? And he goes like, uh, almost. He goes, well, good. Come on, let's go and have a drink. You know, like so. He's like that kind of guy. Immediately, you feel like you've known him for a long time. Yeah, but, I know he too. I was kidding, of course. But I went to his website and I saw he was doing motivational talks. I'm like, good for you, man. This guy's like a great. He he sees the whole business, I think, in ways sometimes people other people don't. Yeah, you know, and, and he says something. It just broke my heart. But then I was about to fall into a an incredible, uh, painful divorce. So at that time, um, he was like, I was looking up to him and somebody in the, in the audience said something like, ask a question like, uh, man, you're like one of the guys, you know, like you're over here and over there, you know, you're so lucky you're going over there and, you know, and, and playing with this guy and playing with this guy, playing with this guy. And he goes, yeah, but what I, what you don't know and nobody knows is, you know where I'm going after this, I'm going to, to a therapist, to counseling. Because somebody told that to my son, and my son tells that kid, 
yeah, well, that's great. He's playing with all these stars, but I don't even get to see my dad. So I have to go to council with my son. So that's the pay, the, the, the pay, the price. You, you, you know, they're, they're saying, oh, we won the war, but how many casualties? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people look at performers, you know, including Chicago, Santana, Steve Winwood, don't ever think that there's a big price to pay. When, you know, uh, when, when a friend of mine told me that I used to play percussion, he used to play percussion with Lola Falana and, and, and the, in the days, and then I moved to LA, and according to him, I made it big. And he always kept his x-ray technician job. So he moved to Florida. He had two boys. He raised the two boys with his wife. And then he wrote me one time. He goes, man, you made it. You know, I'm so proud of you. You know, I see this and I see you and this and this and that. And he goes, Lazaro, don't ever apologize that you have a steady gig and you come home every day and see your kids because you know what you did? You... Uh, coach your son in baseball and he's playing now with the Mariners. Wow. So if you would have been absent and he would have been alone playing baseball, he might have not been able to basically get a boost and make it all the way to little leagues, minor leagues, and big leagues. So think about that. Don't ever excuse yourself for staying home and having a regular job when you oh my God, look, this guy's on TV and this guy's on the road, this and that, because somebody's not with me or with us. Well, you know, Fredo I, Reyes Jr., you're the best, baby. Well, thank you so much. And uh, if, 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 there's a, if I discover a, a better way how to go through all of this, I'll let you know out there. We'll do part two. And I love it. Uh, and, and thank you for, um, I didn't get to a couple of the questions. I'm sure it would mean a lot to them if you could message them back. I'll cover them. I'll, I, I know who they were and, um, and write them for maybe a lot of other people to see the answer. I, uh, I'll mention them here because they might get a kick out of hearing their names in the, in the video. But we're talking about R.M. Sox and uh, Michael Ackerman. I think those are the, oh, and Glenn Sterling. Those are the three we missed. I, I will answer for sure. Great. And I thank you, and you're an amazing person. Uh, I mean it when I, when I need some lessons. <laughs> well, we have a lot in common, and I look forward to getting to know you better. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye.